I'm Wayne Burt. I'm very happy to be here with Sands Hall, writer, and that takes many different variations. You're here in Boise. You're from Nevada City, and uh, you're here in Boise for a very specific reason. It's on the behalf of a play that you've written, correct? Correct. Yeah. What's the name of the play? It's called Fair Use. Ah, that sounds full of legal potholes and things like that. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. It is a copyright term. Mm-hmm. But I also use it because the play encompasses this controversy that surrounds uh, a great American novelist named Wallace Stegner and his use of another person's writing in his in his book, Angle of Repose. Uh, and that woman, of course, lived in Boise, and we'll get to that. But I also, the, the double entendre of what is fair gotcha. uh, yeah. to her and fair... In fact, to him, the play is kind sure. of a trial of him and what's part of the effort. So when you talk about fair, it's it's kind of like in terms of how somebody's work influences another work or how what are the boundaries of quote-unquote influence. Yes, very <laughs> so, well said, Wayne. Thank you. And I do know Wallace Stegner. <laughs> and, and this may be indicative of a lot of people, but I know Mary Halleck Foote more recently than Wallace Stegner. That's probably Very what you common. encounter all the time. In fact, I think one of the marvelous ironies is that as the controversy becomes better and better known, people mm-hmm. who start with Stegner find their way to foot and yeah. begin to realize that she's just what a powerful writer in her own right. Uh, he co-opted a lot of that writing. But, you know, some of her later novels especially really hold up very, very well. And I'm actually hoping they'll get re-released. That's great. Increasing attention being paid to her. That's great. So if I understand, and I did read the play this week, very good play. Thank Thank you. you. It's really great. Um, You wouldn't discourage that arc. From Not at all. starting at Stegner and moving to Mary Halleck Foote. No, I think it's actually delicious and rather marvelous. And I actually think, uh, I mean... As you saw from reading the play, my effort is to kind of imagine a form of Wallace Stegner who is conveniently named W.S., who may or may not have much to do with the actual Wallace Stegner. But I would like to believe that deep in his, which I imagine somewhat troubled soul, that mm-hmm. would actually please him. You know, sure, if sure. Yeah. And that was very much the, the incentive to write the play was once I stumbled upon the degree of usage he'd made of Mary Halleck Foote's mm-hmm. not only her life, but her writing, uh, it was the desire to have them talk to each other. I had this just passionate desire for them to yeah. share a space. And the artistic director of the theater that I was working at, with which I was working at the time, whose name is Philip Sneed, um, when he, uh, he kind of was, the original idea was we were going to make a kind of Nicholas Nickleby day-long idea of the the novel Angle of Repose, and then I came across this controversy, and we decided not to do that. And even yeah. later, he said, you know, you keep talking about these two people talking, you know, in a play you'd write, because I kept saying that would happen on a stage, in the ether that a stage can offer. Sure. And uh, he said, let's go for that. So we applied, actually, for an NEA grant. wasn't a huge one, but enough to pay some actors and the technical stuff together. That's and, great. Yeah, it was great. That's great. So in part of writing the play, you... The, the actors informed how some of the writing went? so yes, a little it, it, bit. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, definitely that. For instance, um, a very good point is that one of the actors who plays this kind of complicated idea in the play, which is actually very simple, which is there's two actors in the play that uh, play the version that Stegner wrote of the 
Foote's Lives, which were called the Wards, and they play the actual historical Foots. And they have to turn on a dime between these two interpretations. Gotcha. And they're actually encouraged to be almost caricatures of those two. You know, some are very kind and wonderful and lovely and marvelous. Yeah. And the others are kind of bitchy and terrible and whatever. So that you can really see what Stegner mm-hmm. did with... And one of those actors, whose name is Gary Wright, is a playwright himself. Oh. And several times he was... One time in particular, I was so touched by the fact that when the Foots lived in Leadville on what was called the Cabin on the Ditch, they used Clarence King's maps as wallpaper. And uh, I was so touched by that piece of historical detail that I just had that in there, and Gary stopped rehearsal one day, and he said, you know, what's the conflict in this scene? You know? <laughs> and he really brought me up short. I had, oh, I realized there isn't one. So <laughs> things like that that were very useful. And also the actors themselves, so those roles particularly just because they're acting and suddenly other people start talking and they have to collapse and get irritated. And yeah. sometimes their very dialogue found its way into the script. Gotcha. That was yeah. fun to do. Yeah. Who's going to say no to something that enriches the story and the exactly. text that you're trying to put forth? Precisely. I understand. Uh, would you then call the... So the, the characters that Stegner created were Susan and Oliver, correct? correct? And then, of course, the characters... The, the characters, the human beings that existed were Mary and Arthur, and Arthur being Arthur Foote, the fellow who traveled around the West first as a mining engineer and then became obsessed with irrigating the arid West, which was um, based on a Powell book, John Wesley Powell, right? The guy That's who, what I believe. The, the yes. guy who navigated. So the thing that I, one of many things I should be clear about uh, is that I loved all the historical uh, allusions in in that, like you know, you have Powell referenced, and um, you know Clarence King and uh, other people. I think that were mm-hmm. that were quite notable, like J.D. Haig. J.D. Haig, yeah. That, uh, I think one of the things that struck me, and thank you, I love the history too. Yeah, There's something some. I can't remember, I don't know who coined this term, but it's a wonderful one called Research Rapture, mm-hmm. where you just find your way into this mm-hmm. material, and it mm-hmm. really fits and does such wonderful things, and. I have had many people say to me that they love, one person said, whatever you do on the rewrite, this was an early draft, don't dumb it down, which I really <laughs> loved. And I think they were talking about the references to the history, which yeah. are so encompassing. And those of us who live in the West, these are shaping aspects of where we live. And one of the points that I really want to make is that I believe this is true, that Arthur Foot was very troubled by the idea of making his living on the backs of men crawling around underground who didn't get paid very well. Gotcha. And in this, he hated the whole premise that was attached yeah. to all these capitalistic, awful people yeah. that were basically making their money off of this basic slave labor. So one of the things he loved about the idea of bringing water to, say, the Boise Valley was that he could do something that benefited mankind. It's not right. too much to say that where he's concerned. Right. He's yeah. one of the points I love, even when the canal appeared to fail here in Boise and J.D. Haig called him to Grass Valley to run the mine down there, uh, Arthur refused to put electricity and men into the same environment. I remember that. Electricity was just a new thing and everybody was putting it, but he knew it was nothing but danger with sure. water and men and electricity. And so he cost Haig a whole lot of money, mm-hmm. but it was 
determining that he would not um, jeopardize yeah. the man under his yeah. under his watch. So yeah, he had a real proletariat bent, didn't he? Um, was Arthur Foote from the East as well? Yes, he was. Uh, because mm-hmm. he met Mary in the East, and then she mm-hmm. followed him out. Exactly. So when you go through the play, I I, I would say that the most pot bi- pot boiler element of the play is that um, Wallace Stegner plagiarized. I don't know how I can say it any other way than liberally from the writings of Mary Halleck Foote in his novel Angle of Repose. So what was the uh, what was the origin of that? What was what was the link? It was a student that Wallace Stegner had at Stanford who wanted to write a dissertation on Mary Foote. Correct. I'm recounting what I read two nights ago. <laughs> so forgive Great me memory. if I'm... Thank mm-hmm. you. Uh, but through that, met some relatives of Mary Foote and came into possession of the memoirs. That's exactly how it okay. happened. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, not the memoirs. He came up with that... The unpublished... Mary. Yes. Things. He yeah. came up and talked to this woman, Janet Michelo, who is the JM at the beginning of uh, the, the, uh, the acknowledgement uh, in Angle of Repose. But he talked to Janet Michelo, who then gave him lots of do- documents, and included in, in those were the letters that Mary Halleck Foote had written to her very beloved friend, Helena, back east. Um, Don't you mean Augusta? Just right. kidding. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and so he... McMurray didn't end up doing anything with that material. And somehow, Wally, Wallace Stegner found his way back to it. He then wrote the family and said, I'm kind of conceiving of this book, a kind of biography of your relatives. So that's how the relatives first thought. And what a beautiful idea that sure. the relatives would be honored sure. in this way. Almost a tribute in um, a way. Absolutely. So yeah. that's what they thought he was going to be doing. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, you know, the letters are fascinating. And then the... Uh, I wouldn't use any, I would use no quotations direct from the letters. That's an actual quote from this letter. And then he said, P.S., do you know the location of your grandmother's reminiscences? So then they clearly sent him the then unpublished manuscript. Gotcha. So that's when I think he got the real arc of the story. Right. Because he read them, and those reminiscences are marvelous. She's got a beguiling voice. She re- She just writes beautifully. Yeah. And... She takes care of the people, so you know she she understates a lot, especially what happens here in Boise in those difficult in that difficult decade. But uh, the writing is lively and beautiful. Yeah, so I, I'm sure he just went, "Oh my God, a treasure trove!" Yeah, um, I can't believe how succulent it is. Yeah, precisely. for sure. Do you suspect? Did he comment? I, I mean, was he presented with that in his lifetime, in a in a real, uh, you know? scoping sort of way i guess i don't mean accusations buzz but were those hard questions asked to him in his lifetime yes um in a book called conversations with stegner on art and literature a man named richard etchulane uh, there's a chapter devoted to the, the controversy gotcha and there are quotations in there that stegner says where i quote one of them in the play he says uh the mary halleck foot stuff was uh, broken rocks out of which I could make any kind of wall I wanted. That's right, that's right. And um, I think to my eye, he sounds a bit defensive, but the thing that I often when the play is produced or read, there is a lot of, of very clear, people draw a very clear line because they admire Stegner so deeply and Angle of Repose shaped their life. Sure. They don't want 
this feet of clay. So the, the thing that they say, and it's true, is that he was within his legal rights. The reminiscences were not published when he incorporated them, and the family had indeed given him permission. Right. But they didn't know what he would be doing exactly. with those letters. And, not, and also how much he would be quoting from them. And the point that I think that's extremely important that I want to make clear, because I think this is the real crux of the issue, and certainly what I try to make the crux of the play, that he borrowed so liberally from the Foots' lives, and he borrowed so liberally, your word, from her actual writing. And he, said, he says himself, using her authentic letters, her authentic voice to bolster the false portrait I'm painting of her, it's incredibly false because in the potboiler aspect of the of the angle of repose, uh, the novel, he concocts a non-existent affair between Susan, the Mary Halleck Foot character, and an engineer that is helping Frank. Frank that is helping Arthur, I mean Oliver, on the on the Boise project, right. on the dam project. So, and as a result of this liaison, whatever might have happened. Mary slash Susan's youngest daughter, Agnes, dies in a ditch. She drowns. Now, what's really compelling about that is Agnes was Mary's actual daughter, and she did die at the age of 18 Mm -hmm. of complications following appendicitis. And it was an enormous tragedy in Mary and Arthur's life. Yeah, I'm sure. So um, that he utilizes it in this way. And he actually said to a grad student, Towards the end of Stegner's life, in the early 90s, there began to be more and more pressing letters being written to him by people exploring the connections. And he wrote to a grad student who had asked him about the connections between Susan Ward and Mary Halleck. Um, uh, He wrote, No, no, there was no Agnes. I invented her as I invented the drowning. Interesting. And that I find really interesting. It's the only family name he didn't change, and she really did die, but she died in tremendously different circumstances than the one he gives in the novel. That, so to me, that's the most important thing to point out, yeah. above the plagiarism, sure. is that, that many, many people in Grass Valley, where I, which is where, near where I live, assume that Mary Foote had an affair and as a result of the affair, her husband yeah. did not speak to her to the rest of her life. Yeah. This had nothing to do with the actual lives of the right. Woods who right. adored each other. Just an example. Out there in the canyon, Boise Canyon, where there were hardly any roads and they had to have a suspension bridge to get across yeah. that river to the house in the yeah. canyon, Arthur Foote arranged to have a piano delivered, surprised Mary with a piano. She could have music, which she missed deeply. You imagine there's no radio, there's no music. Also, he built her a desk that had a cradle in it so that she could write and rock Agnes as it Mm happens, excuse me, Betty as it happens, and then Agnes um, right there in the canyon. So there was a deep, deep love there. And to the end of their days, there was a deep, deep love there. There was. And so you have writing that can be... uh, Two writers that can be equally as sumptuous, I think. Maybe, uh, you know, I'm just saying equally for want of a better word. But, you know, Stegner was obviously capable of writing eloquent passages on his own. Oh, yeah. Unless we find out in the ensuing years that he plagiarized everything. But I'm, that's probably not going to be the case. Uh, as did Mary Halleck Foote. So in the play Fair Use, you quote amply 
you know, you use passages from both the writings, and I just love it because it's such a dissection of, you know, how things get repurposed and uh, how good the writing was unto itself. But the thing that struck me was with Mary and Arthur, and sometimes just directly quoted um, interactions between the two, it was hard, but they were very, very classy people. Very, and the love was out there in full bloom the entire time. And then when you go to the Stegner stuff for the reinterpretations, it's quite a bit more dark and calamitous. So I had the thought in reading the play, I'm getting to the question, thanks for bearing with me, um, that we, uh, the Halleck Foot stuff that was published, when was that published? Give me a. 1972, The Reminiscences. The Reminiscences. So, but take the stuff before that, like the In Exile book and her other stuff. That stuff was published around. Any time from about 1877, I think mm-hmm. her first novel mm-hmm. came out. Mm-hmm. And she wrote all the way up to 19, I think her last book came out something like 1913. Yeah. But the ones, yeah, all of that, all yeah. of them were published by Houghton Mifflin. Actually, the same publishing company that published a lot of Stegner's, which I think is hilarious. That's yeah, that's fairly um, ironic. Yeah, she had quite an oeuvre, a yeah. huge work, work out there. It's amazing how prolific she was, even in a way that supported uh, Arthur's uh, seemingly broken dreams at the time. Um, but the thing that I, you know, and not to get too caught up in labels, but obviously, you know, having read quite a bit and and knowing at least on the surface movements and literature do you think a bit the sensibility difference between mary hallockfoot and wallace dangner has something to do with the eras of the writing you know it's like the thing i thought of when i thought about particularly stegner ws and the play trying to defend himself is like he's defending postmodernism. <laughs> It's like it's existentially dark. And he talks about the warpage. He talks about taking those stories and warping, escalating the conflict. So I don't know. What do you think about that? absolutely right. One of the things I think that's very important to understand is that he wrote out of a time period that was a very nihilistic time. You didn't have an ending. I sort of think of a good ending as going a little bit down, but there's a full up at the end. You kind of want to walk away with a little bit of hope. Sure. But that era, it was just bleak, bleak, bleak. And... Like Stegner's book, All the Little Live Things, I remember throwing it across the room because it was like, I read, I read this and this is the ending. You know, it was something like after every, all the things like that happened to her, all I can say is I'm glad I knew her or something. And this just monstrous things happened to this person. But that was very much his time period. Yeah. What I think is really interesting that you bring up about that is that Mary Halleck Foote was forced to change the ending of her first novel by her publisher. It did not end happily. And she what was has, the name of that first novel? It was called novel? The Lead Horse Claim. Okay. And she said, in the actual scheme of things, those two people could never have stayed together. But my publishers wanted me to change it that they did. And she said, a better writer would not have succumbed to that. So she also had a much darker eye on what was, and Stegner herself, himself called her a realist. Yes. So the other thing I find fascinating that's connected to it, that's only recently really occurred to me, is that what Stegner does to their lives in giving this tryst, this liaison, it, after, as a result of which Susan's daughter dies in the canal, is actually the most romantic piece of balderdash that you can imagine in a way what really happened to the Foots' lives 
was a terribly difficult story that this dream that they worked on and lived and ate and breathed for a decade out here, they saw it have to go under. And yeah. Mary had poured her money into it and all of his dreams. And yeah. as she says in her memoir, the crown of his years, that was gone. And they had to sort of put their lives back together in this much less yeah. wonderful, you know, back to mining and uh, living in Grass Valley, you right. know, another move even further west. <laughs> sure. So that to me is one of the most interesting things that's occurred to me in terms of this, that he actually inserted this little weird romance where in fact there wasn't one. Right. But as he said in a, I think it's a letter to that grad student, he writes something like, or it's an interview, he says, um, if I had written a, no a no novel based on the lives uh, life of Mary Halleck Foote, the Foots, it would have sold at best 3,000 copies. <laughs> By turning her into fiction, I had the chance to make her immortal. Caddy man, he... It sounds pretty fatuous to me, but it anyway, does. that's what he... That was his effort. Yeah. And I think that's where I sense the slight defensiveness. Sure. Know? We did a production of Fair Use up here. The New Heritage Theater uh, did it, and I was very grateful to them for doing it. And there was a woman who led a talk back at the end of one of those performances, and she made an amazingly wonderful point, I thought. She said, there was no way that Stegner, writing in the 60s, could ever dream that within less than a decade, scholars and historians would be scouring history to find women's diaries, to be looking on their pages for the little asterisk that might mean that was the day of their period, sure. the day they made love with their husband. Sure. There were all these ways that they had secrets embedded in these uh, coming across the plains right. or moving into Oregon or Washington or Idaho for the first time, that these women's works would become interesting. Sure. He was a man of his time. Absolutely. So just as much as you're talking a literary movement, sure. it was also simply cultural. I had no idea that women would become yeah. interesting. And so. so as the interesting novelty to him was like finding a, a valuable necklace at a thrift store, those necklaces became more overwhelmingly valued in the years to come, and it was not a lot less unique. Do you think... Um, That's a great analogy. Yeah, via what you say, that some of Stegner's timelessness, if he were ever qualified that way, could be called into question? I mean, it's not for either one of us to say, I suspect, mm -hmm. but um, do you think that casts some, cast a little bit of doubt on that? Because Stegner was very, I think, saddened by the lack of East Coast acceptance. I mean, when he won the Pulitzer, it was a great big deal. Yeah. Although the New York Times slammed the committee, they thought it should have gone to an Updike novel. Mm -hmm. But uh, he had a very, you know, he spent summers in Vermont, but he had a very tussly relationship with the, with the East. And one of the things I found really fascinating is when I interviewed, I have a job as a professor, an assistant professor at Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And when I interviewed for that job, a number of years ago, I talked about this project as one of the things that um, was on my, you know, resume. And there were 13 people in that room, all of them scholars and historians and marvelous, really educated people. I think one had heard of Wallace Stegner. Is that right? And not one had read Angle of Repose. And it rocked me back on my heels. I'll bet it I did. I was stunned. And one of the things I've noticed and is that his star has not stayed risen. You know, it's an interesting phenomenon. In fact, kind of, I had one of the reasons I'm so thrilled that this play is getting a reading is I'd kind of said goodbye to it. Yeah. I thought, 
he's not he's not a guy that's got any interest in the play doesn't really stand on its own you kind of have to be engaged in the stegner yeah it has to be fed by those it things and if you don't know about it it's kind of loses a lot of its of its impetus so you have to be engaged with foot or or with stegner and and or both and um so i just sort of bid goodbye to it i thought well it had this little life you know that so i'm very very pleased that it's having another outing and that above all that it gives an opportunity for a listener I mean, an observer to get uh, acquainted with Mary's writing, right, and begin to know who she is. That's a. It's a great. To me, that's one of the biggest reasons that that I wrote the play. I mean, it was first it was to get this terrible news out, but really, in the long run, plagiarism. You know, it's kind of like okay, so if someone did a nasty thing, but the bigger issue is that he so warped her life. That to me is the much bigger yeah. issue, and that yeah. she did not get her credit. Absolutely, credit where credits. Absolutely. Due. Well, kudos to you for attempting to remedy that. Anyway, it's your attempt. Yeah. yeah. When you look at the surface of the biography, I think it underscores everything you say. You know, because um, when you know you read the little sign, I don't know if you've been out to the homestead Just site. <laughs> that, that's Love really that great. Um, but. The surface of the Mary Halleck foot biography is she is she published at Harper. She was an illustrator. She was a Renaissance person. Um, but you don't really begin to discover the magnitude of it until you read and um, maybe savor some of those passages. You're like, wow, okay, I, I get it. I chose to end the play with one of those descriptions just because I think that's what I want to leave the reader. Yeah. It's not a big climactic ending. It is, there's been a climax. Sure. It's really, she's doing her writing. Yeah. And Wallace, the W.S. character, is not. And that's just, <laughs> you know, imagely, that's the image on the stage. Sure. She is no longer writing. Her own writing is soaring out sure. on its own world. To me, that's incredibly important that it happened like that. In addition to the biography, I think, uh, and especially because the bulk of your listeners will live in and around Boise, to journey out to that site and stand where they lived and look at that house, which is, you know, it's just rubble now because it, it was built out of earth. And it it's amazing that it even existed. It's amazing. And if you didn't have photographs, you'd be like, really? You know, I trekked around yesterday. This is where the kitchen would be. And this, yeah. But that extraordinary view and the idea. I mean, everybody at the time lived without running water. Everybody at the time lived without toilet facilities, the things we take so for granted. But to be out there and realize that she raised three kids yes. out there in that absolute, at the time, wilderness. I mean, now there's a dam up there yeah. above, and there's a road that you can hear the cars they would have heard would be that river. Oh, sure. You know, and yeah. so wind through whatever the, trees. The river, there, figurative you know. or not. <laughs> yeah. The so damned or not. That's right. love her passionately. Oh, absolutely. The them, just for what the, that she supported her husband. Uh, and, you know, he turned to drink. He, he had, he had a problem with alcohol. Sure. And I think it really, really upset her. It's not referenced very often in reminiscences, but she certainly writes about it too. I don't think she ever brings it up in the reminiscences. Gotcha. But she does write about it to her friend, Helena Augusta in the novel. Mm -hmm. And, um, and she even tries to leave him. Wow. She walks away from him, tries to spend a summer by yeah. herself yeah. with her three kids and realizes... After the Boise Canyon or... Yes, it's when the Boise Canyon... Before, before Grass Valley. Before Grass before Valley. Before Grass Valley. And then she returns and says, 
I am committed to being the part of a nervous wife. That's just who I am. And that makes me love her too. You know? Sure. I think one of the things that I, that I, that I lo- want the play also to provide is what a resilient marriage. Yeah. Marriages go through so much awful stuff. Absolutely. And there's so much difficulty. And what actually keeps you in there but don't walk inside by this person you, you chose? That's a huge metaphor, the drought-tolerant marriage. Right? Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Zara escaped marriages. Um, if you don't, listeners, know where that homestead is, if you go up to the Lucky Peak Reservoir, you'll take a ride off Highway 21, uh, curl around, and then it's sort of this really um, not very uh, well-marked dirt little, road. Little Canyon, L-Y-D-L-E, they take that. Lytle Canyon. Lytle. There it is, yes. And so, yeah, take the right, weave down no more than a quarter mile, maybe a half mile, and there it is in like the most anomalous little park with like four trees. Like forty feet long, <laughs> and I should. This would be a perfect opportunity right now to say that the play and the reading of the play is a fundraiser for something called the Foothouse Project. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. To bring more information right now, there's a little tiny plaque that doesn't say much of anything about either one of them. But there's an effort to have more plaques of the kind of National Park Service variety that would give more of a history of what they were both together, but particularly independently, who they were in the West, and especially the Boise area, as well as even an effort to perhaps replicate a bit of the astonishing house that they built out of the native earth they lived on. Uh, It had walls that were four feet thick to keep the heat out in summer and the heat in in winter. Uh, They actually had a second story, which I find quite amazing. Um, and beautiful windows that looked out on that. When you stand at that place and look at the notch in the canyon where the river goes through, but you just see this notch in the canyon, she drew and wrote about that scenery so evocative. So amazing. Howard Zinn would be proud. (laughs) If the play takes place tomorrow night at the Morrison Center, it's one of the side stages, which all have absolutely excellent acoustics. And so this is a performance of fair use with some members of the Boise Contemporary Theater. Is that yes, correct? Yes, I'm really pleased. There's this little, so much little serendipitous loveliness went into this. I, uh, I, as I say, I teach back east, and I need someone to take care of my cats when I'm gone. So this woman who lives in Boise, or lived in Boise, named Rachel McGrath, showed up to sort of interview for this little job, whatever it would be. And and she happens to know Jodine Revere, who is a very lead actress here in town. And Jodine has been an enormous help to me putting the the troupe together. I couldn't, and of course, I never met any of these people till three nights ago. I never, I did not know a single one of them. So she's in addition to being a yeah. lovely actress, she's a terrific casting director. So I'm working with Tiara Thompson and with Mike Cronin and with Lauren Jones and with uh, Jennifer Stockwell Donner. That's and great, Lin- Lyndon um, Ano. So it's a great group and. It's quite wonderful to have walked in and go, yeah, the historian. Oh, there's Mary. That's Mary Halleck Foote. You know, that's great. It's wonderful to see. Yeah, that. and there is such a physical element to the play because people are moving to the foreground. They're turning to each other, and the interactions with the six characters, mm-hmm. seven characters, are they're surprising the directions that you choose. So I think it keeps you on your feet. And more than anything, I really look forward to seeing it. So I, I think much. it's going to be great. It starts at seven o'clock. Seven o'clock. More uh, Morrison Danny Center, the Danny Peterson Theater. That's what I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And and it's fundraiser, so your dollars goes towards a good cause. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. Uh, cool. Um, so viva Mary Halleck Foot, and uh, thank you for stopping by. This is Sands Hall. I've been talking to the writer of the play Fair Use, 
uh, and uh, you want a little dose of literary reality and sumptuousness and what I would suspect to be good acting, you should show up. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Wayne.